Welcome to the International Association of Business Communicators Amina Region podcast. This is Monique Sidnick. Today we're talking all things comms in Saudi Arabia with Gary Hernandez and Sarah Palmer. Gary is a new IABC Amina board member and has over 20 years of experience in writing communications in the oil and gas industry and is currently located in Dharan. Sarah is also an expat in Saudi and currently in Jeddah, a port city on the Red Sea. She is the Director of Corporate Affairs at Saudi Aerospace Engineering Industries and has a multitude of experience in public relations, marketing and freelance writing in Australia, the UK and Middle East. In our conversation today, we're covering everything from what it is like to work in Saudi Arabia in comms to what you should look for in a new hire. I hope you enjoy our free-ranging conversation. Welcome, Gary and Sarah. Thank you, Monique. Hi, Gary. Thank you, Monique. Hello, everyone. So let's start with you, Gary. Can you share a little bit more about your professional background and how you came to work in Saudi Arabia? Sure. Let's see. I have a bachelor's from Baylor University in Texas in the U.S. and with a double major in English and psychology. Uh, I have an MA in English literature from George Mason University and an MS in technical writing from Utah State University. So I've been in oil and gas for about 30 years. And if you're in oil and gas in the U.S., all roads lead to Houston. And for me, they did. They led to a lot of places, but ultimately Houston. And once in, once I was in Houston, all roads then began to lead to the Middle East. But yeah. So that's what brought me to to the Middle East. And how long have you been there now? Oh, I've been here uh, eight years as of last month. And you're in internal comms? Yes, I, I exclusively internal comms, yeah. And what about you, Sarah? What's your story? Yeah, so it's a, it's a, little, it's a little more diverse in terms of the industries I've worked in. Uh, like Gary, my original degrees don't relate to corporate or communications directly. So I have a bachelor majoring in anthropology from University of Adelaide in Australia. And then after that, I went straight into the workforce. Um, I, did, I then did an MBA with the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. Uh, at the time, I was working for Saudi Aramco. So it was a company-sponsored MBA. So I was doing it with a cohort of peers and then uh, also you know, getting to know our Hong Kong lecturers and things like that. So that was a real eye-opener. But I've worked uh, basically in communications in some form or another for the last ooh, 20 years. Uh, and also within that, it covers, you know, I've worked in fashion, luxury, lifestyle, and then also trade, so more in-house. And then when I came to Saudi Aramco, I also started working with their medical organisation, which is one of the areas where I had a large-scale project to work with Gary on. But how did you end up in Saudi Arabia? Oh, so um, this is not going to sound like a very empowering story, but my husband got offered a job with Saudi Aramco. He'd been consulting with them for 10 years. I um, mean, I had visited him out here and found the, the region really interesting. And I had just gotten pregnant. We were living in London at the time. We'd been there for about five years. We'd been really enjoying work, but we were both traveling 50% of the time, mm-hmm. which doesn't work if you're, if you're going to have a baby. So he decided to accept the job in Saudi. And I actually, and this is the most immense sense of like lack of self-awareness that I thought, oh, I'll, I'll be a stay-at-home mum. As it turns out, I started working and doing freelance writing before I gave birth on maternity leave. Um, so it wasn't really my path. <laughs> uh, I, so I was just doing writing and editing, ironically for hydrocarbons for BP. And then when I got to Saudi, 
I started freelancing with Saudi Aramco's corporate affairs department. And so a lot of that was you know, the journalism or writing. And it was, I don't know if uh, many of the listeners know much about Aramco, but it's the world's most profitable company. It's also, depending on what's happening with shares and Apple, sometimes the most valuable. But honestly, I think it's one of the most interesting, the breadth of the company, um, whether it's you know creating an Oryx sanctuary in the middle of Sheba, like one of the largest deserts in the world, or, you know, um, high, like horizontal tunneling to protect reefs. It, you know, it's got a research and development. It's almost anything you could ever think of talking to someone about the, what they do. You'll find someone who does that in the company. Um, so that was a really good way to get to know uh, Saudi Aramco and sort of understand more about Saudi Arabia as well. And then a year ago, I moved to Saudi Aerospace Engineering Industries, which is part of the Saudi group, the airline group. So it's actually like Aramco, it's one of the oldest companies in the kingdom. So it's over 65 years old. And it's been sort of one of those national building companies. So Saudi Arabia as a country is, I want to say, 93 years old. I think that's right. So these companies that have been around since the first couple of decades, and particularly aviation, because it's one of those multipliers of like na- gross national products. So for every 10% growth in aviation, you get like a 1% equivalent growth in GDP. With oil for energy and the Saudi group for you know transport and aviation and bringing people in and out, you know it's been a really exciting um, area to work in and to, to understand more about its influence on the country. And how was the cultural shift going from the UK to Saudi Arabia? I think that's one of the beautiful things about the Amina region is it's so diverse and so many languages, so many different cultures. What were your first impressions? I think that, I think I was, um, because this was 13 years ago, I've been here 13 years. I think that initially a little um, concerned and hesitant, not wanting to offend anyone, not being quite sure about the dynamics of men and women in the workplace because at that time in Saudi, it was very unusual for women to be working. There wasn't a lot of policy to support it. Uh, Also, it was the time where women weren't driving or voting. Those things have just changed at an immense speed. And, you know, the country's transformed in a way that, you know, I think is really exciting. But I was, I think, initially just a little bit maybe hesitant. I don't know if anyone else would have noticed because I'm pretty candid and I don't know, Gary, you can probably speak to what I'm like in the workplace. But I actually found I had great working relationships with the Saudi men that I worked with. I found them, you know, really welcoming and supportive of development and growth. And then I've made really good friends that I'm from like my first couple of years working who I'm still close with. I think it did involve understanding, you know, I went from Australia workplace to the UK. And so there was some adjustment there, but obviously there's a lot of shared ground there. I think some of the biggest differences for me were Context becomes even more important uh, within internal communications and external communications. And just coming from dealing with the London media, which is really a very aggressive and sort of different style of, of journalism, and then to the Saudi media, which is more relationship based and sort of less about, you know, breaking a, a big story and more about sort of sharing information and you know, representing the country. And it just has sort of a very different um, approach to, to news. And I think the news has, has shifted considerably in the past couple of years as well with the social media and the media cycle just speeding up so much. And Gary, your impressions, Gary, of moving from America to Saudi Arabia? Yeah, one of the things I tell people when they come or they when they become an expat anywhere is the the main thing they have to do is to actually leave the country 
that they originated from. Uh, and I see a lot of people, and so I've been an expat in the UK, I've lived in Germany and, and now Saudi Arabia. But one thing I've noticed is a, a lot of people will arrive in a new country with their expectations that they had from the previous country, right? Um, all the cultural expectations. And it's really, really difficult for people to let go of those biases and all those assumptions. And if you can't do that, everything will seem strange to you and awkward and wrong. So you really have to, I, I think, let go of your, your previous culture and embrace the, the new culture. And it's just a matter of respect and being trying to be open-minded. Another thing I learned, particularly in Saudi Arabia, was that everyone says that they're open-minded. I, I've, I've, I've met very few people who said, I'm a closed-minded person. Everyone believes that they're really open-minded. But what I was taught when I got here by a female employee, you know, who it was a, a very enlightening conversation. She said to me, you know, Gary, if you're really open-minded, you have to under, it's a, open-mindedness is a spectrum, right? And people believe that they're open-minded if they're on typically what we would describe as the left. And she said, but if you're really open-minded, you have to understand there's also a very, um, what we would call like a conservative view. And people who are raised and live in that environment, that's right and natural for them. To be open-minded, you have to be able to accept both those sides and the innards of that entire spectrum. So that was uh, that was a real eye-opening uh, learning. But I wanted to address kind of a business culture and how I've experienced it differing uh, region to region. So when I was in the U.S., the overall business culture that I would run into over and over again was about performance. It was about getting things done, making things happen, you know, whether it's a project or an initiative or whatever it is, just making it happen, rolling it out and getting it done. When I worked in the UK, the business culture seemed to be a bit different there. It seemed to be more about, you know, what was the smartest, cleverest, most nuanced, sophisticated, layered idea or scheme that we could work, right? So the person with that idea, that best, the cleverest idea in the room would typically win the day. And then in the Middle East, what I've experienced is it seems to be more of a wisdom-based business culture where instead of looking at the bottom line all the time or instead of looking at um, deadlines and timelines, the prevailing question is always, how is this going to impact people? Is this going to have a negative effect? Is it going to be, is it going to have a positive effect? And regardless of the cost, what is the right thing to do for the people involved? Which is a very refreshing approach. And then again, it is different, I believe, than, than other business cultures and other regions that, again, might focus more on timelines or deadlines or certain KPIs. All those things are, of course, um, still important and still considered I think in most businesses in, in the Middle East, but again, the added nuance, the, the priority lens is about how it impacts people, right? The ethical questions 
around business decisions. And what's helped you become successful in your career, Gary? I think Sarah and I both described a career path that was not traditional, I think. You know, so for me, I did not enter oil and gas in a communications function. I came in in what we call CNG, convenience and gas retailing, um, gasoline marketing, essentially out in the field, working with uh, franchisees and company-owned stores and all that. It was probably a good 10 years into my career before I moved into, or longer, before I moved into communications. But during that time, I learned the fundamentals of the business. I learned how what we call the hydrocarbon value chain actually works, how the company makes money. So one of the most valuable things I learned was business fundamentals. No matter what business you're in, you have to understand the business fundamentals. You can't just walk in and talk about newsletters and speeches and, you know, the email that you're going to send out or the, um, you know, social media blast. You have to actually understand how the business works and how the business makes money. So that, that was one thing. The, another thing was, I really had to continue to develop and refine my own skills. My primary skill as a communicator is my writing skills. I have very strong writing skills and I always have, right? It was one of those natural things that, you know, and I I know people don't like to say natural talents and all that, but it was, was my natural talent, but I couldn't leave it at that. And I spent years and years and years and still continue trying to improve my writing and learn different techniques and things like that. There's something about continuing to develop and refine my core, my single core competency. Out of all the competencies there are in communications, there's typically one or two that a communicator will be very, very, very good at. And uh, for me, it was writing. And finally, it's, uh, I would say, project management skills. You have to learn how to move from point A to point B in a very systematic fashion, right? Taking in all the strategic inputs, understanding how they turn into tactical outputs, uh, understanding, you know, each step along the way, understanding contingencies and critical paths and all that. And that part of that is speaking the language of the business, but the other part of it is just getting done, getting things done quickly and efficiently and systematically. So the shortest and most efficient route from point A to point B? Not always the shortest. Mm -hmm. You always start with the longest, the most robust, but you have to be prepared to consolidate and shrink timelines (laughs) in a moment's notice. And flexibility, I'm guessing. Correct, yes. And what about you, Sarah? A lot of that sort of echoes what Gary's talking about. And I think it leads a little bit onto the topic that you foreshadowed earlier, which is about what makes a good communications person. And I think Gary's an exemplary example of that, which is that real interest in continuing to learn and develop your own skill set. Gary's point about understanding business. I mean, I personally think that if you work for a company, you should understand it. If your job's communications, it doesn't mean that you're just communications. You need to understand, you know, the business, you need to understand not just, you know, the things that matter to you, like the organizational structure and, you know, what's the business plan. You also need to understand what are the core elements, you know, what's the purpose that the business is there for? Because otherwise you are not going to understand the people and you're not going to understand where communications can add real value. And you can't take a seat at the table unless you understand that and you're really just wasting other people's time. Um, And it was one of the things I loved working with Ramco and now moving into aviation, sitting down like with a book at night, working out how do you recognize the different planes? What's the difference between, you know, you know, a Boeing 777 and you know, an Airbus 320, you know, 
I want to make sure that I know that, you know, in 12 months in, there's things I understand about it now that I never would have thought that, that I'd become familiar with. For me, I agree with Gary. Absolutely. To add value, you need to understand, you know, the, the purpose of the company you're working for. Uh, the writing skills piece, again, this is, uh, I think, one of the reasons that Gary and I have always enjoyed working together is we find that piece incredibly important. And that's another skill that it doesn't really matter what part of communications you work in or any career. I found it's a real differentiator between success, being able to articulate and put things down on paper in a way that others can clearly understand. You know, ideally you can get to the point of persuasive writing, but everyone should strive for clarity. I think it's one of the the principles of, of success in, you know, any, any endeavor. Um, one of the things actually, Gary talked about the project management and a lot of what I apply today is what I've learned from one of my projects working with Gary, which was not just about, great, we've got a Gantt chart with a clear table and everyone knows what we're doing when. It was about the ability to manage up to the most senior level of a very large corporation on a project that had a lot of sensitivities, which shows this is our critical path, these are our red lines. So it really um, it was seeing an example of how, as a communicator, you can lead a project and make sure that every element is getting addressed and all the work streams are working together. And when you do need to, you know, whether it's collapse the work stream, sorry, collapse the timeline and go a lot faster, the things that you skip or the things that get changed aren't going to be the things that undermine the project. Um, and I, then I think the being open-minded. So I thought that, as Carrie said, I thought I was open-minded because everyone thinks they are, even if you're just slightly to the left. Um, but it wasn't until I was doing my MBA where I started interacting a lot with you know, people from different areas and specifically you know, within Hong Kong. And because I think Australia and the UK are quite similar, so it wasn't such a cultural leap. Um, and then the Middle East was more different. And so I think I sort of had an almost two-dimensional view of like intercultural communications. Mm-hmm. You know, very much there's this way or there's that way. And then, you know, then oh, and then having a third lens to view that through, um, working with, you know, the professors and the teams in Hong Kong, giving it sort of like, it's almost like when you break the fourth wall, it suddenly feels like, oh, it's not just this or that. You know, it's this or any number of a million absolute different interpretations. Um, one of the things that I use a lot is Hofstede's cultural dimensions. And I think for anyone who's interested in exploring this more, just look it up. It's, um, he's a very famous, I want to say, Dutch professor. And I've actually seen really interesting cases of this implemented for the internal communications in Air France and KLM when they merged. They actually, you know, based a lot of their work on this because they had to get two different, quite different, like the French and the Dutch are really quite different groups of people, um, you know, building uh, shared understanding. Hosted's cultural dimensions cover six dimensions and they talk about basically people's preference for different states. So there's like uncertainty, how comfortable different cultures are with uncertainty, you know, power differentials. And so as an example, and you can put in, they've got like a cultural dimensions calculator and you put in the two countries and it gives you their different outlooks on the cross the six dimensions. So you can see where there's like divergence, which helps you understand where you might be facing difficulties. And so for example, Australia and Japan are as far as possible part on, on the cultural dimension. So things like in a meeting, and this is a lot of the things I think you need to be successful apply across every professional field because we all interact with different people. You know, you're doing communications no matter what your role is. And so for example, with Japan and Australia, in Australia, if you're in a meeting with a leader and they're talking about a situation, you know, by making suggestions and speaking up, you see yourself as a helpful employee, someone who's there to, to provide solutions. Whereas, you know, from what I've been told from colleagues who've worked in Japan and from the Hofstede's cultural principles, 
in Japan, people are more likely just to listen respectfully and stay quiet and, and, you know, stand by to be told because they feel like it'd be disrespectful for interrupt and to, you know, put their ideas out in front of everyone, in front of a leader. And so, you know, they are two very different interpretations of, of one situation sort of getting to understand that and where I feel like I've made mistakes in my career and where things haven't at all gone the way I planned, um, sometimes with really visible um, collapses of plans, is where I've assumed other people would interpret information the same way I would. And that, that was the only logical way. And this is even though, you know, and I've been working with a team and there would have been a chance. Obviously, I didn't spend enough time getting other people's perceptions of of what we were communicating and spend making enough space for other people to speak and listen. And then the execution is just like, oh, that is not what I expected at all. So yeah, sometimes that message can get reinforced in a very real way. And I'm really curious for our listeners, Sarah, do you have any tips and tricks to kind of, I guess, pop yourself on the, on the right track for making sure that you are considering those different perspectives? Is there something that you've adopted? Yeah. So one of the things is, um, so I'm talking to you, I think I mentioned before, I've got a broken arm and it's my right arm and I'm normally a copious taker of notes. You know, it just, it, it's how I process and learn. Um, so what I have in the back of my, my notebook that I take to all my meetings is in scenarios that have not gone as I expected, I've noted down what would I expected, what was the outcome and why. You know, every now and again, it's a positive example, <laughs> um, something that you'll do more of. Often it's not. Um, so keeping a note of those so I can think through them. And also it helps, I think, maybe keep you a little less rigid in your thinking. Also like checking in with other people whose, whose opinions you know are different to your own. It's very easy to get into an echo chamber with people who always tell you your ideas are great or always echo the same and you just build up your sense of outrage together or agreement. And like making sure you've got some strong relationships with people with really different perspectives who you know will tell you what they think. And then I think reading, you know, don't just read your newspaper, make sure you're looking at things with different opinions. You know, I think um, particularly now we have so many algorithms that push things into our, you know, our, our streams that it increases that risk of you just having a whole confirmation bias cycle. So what you think is what gets reinforced is what you see. So you get a narrative that is sometimes I think quite limited. So embracing that diversity of opinion then. Yeah, really, really making sure you're not you're not letting that just become confirmation bias, basically. And Gary, do you have any tricks at all? I, I saw you nodding. Well, I took notes <laughs> of some of, of Sarah's tricks that I'm going to start implementing <laughs> myself. But I love this idea around. Um, so for me, I utilize or, or tap into what I would call thought partners, and which I think Sarah really described well. It's just uh, people who you can go to and talk to and get their feedback, get their reaction to something. And and I also, you know, I completely agree with Sarah's comment about the you know, confirmation bias and all that. I have uh, I have a lot of friends with very different and, and people I associate with people who are I would call thought partners with very different leanings, if you will, and I and it goes maybe it goes back to that open mindedness piece, right? And being able to hear contradictory ideas and 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 thoughts and feedback and not take it personally and be able to say, okay, that's good input. You know, and, and understanding that if one person has that point of view, there's, you know, in, in our company, we have, you know, 
70,000 people, right? So that one person with that point of view probably represents thousands of people with a similar point of view. And over 30 different nationalities. Right, yeah. And so, Gary, would you look for those kind of diversity and opinion when building your own team, for example? What would you look for when you're hiring it's it typically I would hire according to the gaps that I have and according to the skills sets and experience, whatever that I need. I know I'm going to need long term. Right. So I always look for good writers because with you can't be a good writer if you're not a good critical thinker. Right. Those two things come hand in hand. So if I can get a good writer, I also know I'm getting a clear thinker. And a clear thinker, I can teach project management or can learn project management, can learn put together a strategic communications plan. So when I when I look for communication professionals, of course, I always look at the, the traditional dichotomy, right? The the technical skills, do they have writing skills? Do they understand stakeholder analysis? Do they understand all the steps that are involved in building out a strategic communications plan? And can they deliver specific aspects of a communications plan? Again, whether it's stakeholder analysis, whether it's uh, measurement, or whether it's developing communications collateral, whether it's in writing or graphics or you know, whatever medium is used. So that's one piece, right? Do they have the technical skills and at what level are they? Are they entry level are they intermediate? Or are they advanced and so forth? And then the other piece I, I look for is the behavioral piece, right? Um, does the individual have seem to have the drive, seem to be self-motivated? I look for what some people would term, would call a, a, the locus of control, right? So I'd love to ask interviewees, things about, um, you know, things that went wrong in in the workplace, right? Did they tell me about a project that didn't go to plan, right? And what happened? And what I look for when I ask that question, what I hope to hear is a person to tell me, well, X, Y, and Z happened, of course, and this is what went wrong. And if I had the chance to do it over again, here's what I would have done differently. Or something like, um, and I believe that if I had just, you know, focused more on this certain aspect, then we might have resolved that that issue. I want to hear that person take on ownership of what happened. You know, not not so that so that they can be the person to blame in the story, but I want to hear recognition that they own all of that. When they rolled something out or executed the plan, they owned it, um, the good and the bad. And most importantly, if something did go wrong, what did they learn from it and how did they grow from that experience? So those that's kind of one of the key behaviors that I look for in an employee. So it's the, the first piece is you got to have the technical skills. And the second piece is you have to have the self-motivation, the drive, the healthy work ethic to make things happen in the workplace. One of the things that I will say, when I hire people, I tend to 
you know, think the best of people, which can be a critical failure in the interview process. So when I interview and hire people, I always have someone else with me. I always have a, another teammate, a trusted teammate whose opinion I can trust and who will think more critically about the person that I'm talking to and who can punch through any of the biases or assumptions that I may, may have. And I, as well, you know, I can uh, provide that service to the other person I'm interviewing with, but um, yeah, I find that, find that useful. And Sarah? Yeah. I mean, I, I'll do the same as Gary. I always have um, someone else in the interview with me. Cause I think, again, it's just that they ask questions I wouldn't have thought of, or it gives you an opportunity to observe more closely when they're asking a question. I think you get a lot, a lot of um, valuable input when you're seeing the person you're interviewing interact with someone else. I don't hire specifically to fill gaps. Like I'm not trying to create, okay, I've covered this many continents or this many professions with my team. I I am conscious of it. Like I do want diversity, but I think normally I'm hiring for the attitude, the same similar attitudes that Gary described and that interest and curiosity, like people who read want to know about and learn about the world around them. Um, you know, it's no good filling in, you know, a gap in your your team, even if that person fits or is representative part of your audience, if they aren't open-minded and able to express their thoughts. And if you can only see it through one lens, then you're not going to be able to contribute. You're just basically part of a focus group. And you mentioned the right attitude. Can you explain that a little bit? Like what, what do you mean by the right attitude? Oh, yeah, that's, again, this, that's an example of, you know, me just assuming everyone knows what the right attitude is, the right attitude. Um, so for me, that is, <laughs> yeah, um, for me, it's the willingness to ask questions, not to be willing to write anything they don't understand, which was actually a lesson um, I got taught by uh, Maria Farmer, who has a public relations agency in Sydney. Um, she's a real incredible industry figure and, you know, she's, you know, Rep. Kate Blanchett and Tony Collette and Basil and like she's worked with incredible people. Um, and she always used to say, my highest earning word is no. And, you know, <laughs> people who um, are willing to think about something and go, okay, even it looks like a good opportunity, it's not the right fit or, and who are willing to speak up and, you know, just disagree. So, you know, I think the right attitude is someone who doesn't accept the status quo is obviously respectfully, you know, is good at building relationships and is just interested in what's happening. That's a really important piece for me. And what have you observed um, with other managers and environment around you at the moment post-pandemic crisis? Is there something that communicators need to be helping them with? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think I think the role of corporate communications has changed since the pandemic because so many people were getting information that was really important to them and really vital, um, not just about, okay, you're working from home now or we're doing this differently, but, you know, they were getting health information um, and they were needing to engage with what was happening with work and what was happening in their personal lives as well. So you had to think about, okay, I'm at work in this environment and I may be exposed to this, this and this. How does this relate to my home situation where I may be exposed to this, this and this? I think it blurred, and then often people were working at home, so I think it blurred a lot of lines between sort of professional and communication and I haven't even got a word for it because it's not personal communication but something that's broader, something that says, well, how is your family? (laughs) Are they well? You know, how can we protect them 
whilst still having you come into work. Um, because I was working with Aramco's healthcare service during the pandemic, it was a really intense time. And so, you know, we were going into the ICUs uh, with cameras and speaking to nurses and doctors and collaborating with them on, you know, communications because it was very fast changing there for a while. I mean, it's hard to look back and recall now, you know, there was the period where we didn't know whether it was whether COVID was spread by you know, by speaking and air, like we didn't know it was airborne. I mean, now it's hard to think that at a point we didn't know whether that was even the case. So we were working with doctors and nurses who were already flat out, um, but then needing that to pull them back and say, great, can you talk to us about this? How can we explain this? Communicating regularly to um, our medical employees, but then also to our patients and to our management about all the changes that were happening because we were constantly in a, in a state of change. And so I think communications, I think people have higher expectations now. I think that's where they came out of the pandemic. So I think people expect um, a higher level of trust and integrity from the communications because they they became literally life or death um, around correct guidelines and information. And I think people want to be considered more consideration for their workplace environment. So that means when you're organizing a meeting, you know, like a town hall level company meeting or things like that, thinking about how people are going to be interacting with it you know, not everyone's going to be on a PC with the software you expected. So being really clear, making sure that, you know, the barrier to your successful communications plan, you know, it's not about your messaging or your content, but it's like, oh, well, they couldn't actually access it. So, you know, nothing gets beyond that. So execution and then consideration of just more scenarios that your employees might be dealing with or your audiences in general. And Gary, your thoughts? I can see you nodding. Yeah, about communications after covid you know, so there's there's a couple I, th- I think hot trends or topics that are floating around. You know, one is, and this has been floating around for quite some time, around transparency, um, and we hear employees want to have more transparency. And I think it's a it's a realistically it's a double edged sword, right? I think you know transparency is a function of time. You know, clearly there's things you can't tell employees about certain matters because it might be illegal, there might be regulatory things. I do believe that if we were to tell employees everything all the time, it would be, it would not be helpful, right? It would be obstructive. So I think there's something about, um, as a communicator, it's understanding what, how much you can share when, Right. And understanding what that fine line is with a bias to, of course, sharing more information uh, and more rationale with employees rather than than holding that back. You know, employees don't have all the, the right information. They will just make assumptions and guesses and speculation. And as Sarah had mentioned, you know, sometimes that can be buried. That can just flat out be life threatening. And the other thing is, I, I think with COVID, it's it's brought up this huge remote working ideal, you know, are you more productive working in the workplace or more productive working from home or should there be a happy medium between there? And I, and I don't know what the answer is. I think, you know, personally, I prefer to be in the office around other people and there's a certain type of energy. Um, but I do recognize that some people can be more productive at home. But I think that has, you know, in the past we had the luxury of not even having to have that debate. And now it's it's on the forefront. Uh, it has to be addressed. And one of the other things I think COVID has driven home is 
the effect it has on communicators, you know. So Sarah was describing quite a, you know, as she was describing her experience, you could just feel the tension and, and, and the, the energy as well. And as communicators during a crisis or really during any time, we're, we're always on. Right. We always we have to be thinking about employees, what they're thinking about. We work a lot of hours. We work into the night. And I think oftentimes we forget to actually take care of ourselves because we're so busy trying to be everything to everyone. Oh, no, this the you know, our executive needs uh, some talking points. What should he say? You know, we're constantly being asked for support and for help which I think we, and most of us readily give, you know, sometimes we do that at the detriment of our own health. So I think there, it's important, especially after COVID, finding ways to detox, to relax, to regenerate or re-energize, I should say. Sarah, do you have self-care tips that you follow? I think I'm probably an appalling example um, of self-care. Like Gary, so Gary and I just have our own little echo confirmation bias chamber. Uh, so, yeah, and I think um, Gary's point about particularly, I mean, all communications, because basically the better you are at communications, the more you'll be asked to do, the, the wider range of progs that pro, um, projects that you'll get pulled into because people can see and value your perspective. That is definitely a risk. So I think in general, burnout is a really, it's easy to, to, um, to creep up on you if you're working in comms. With crisis communications, as Gary spoke about, um, having gone through a couple of quite intense crisis communication scenarios, COVID being the, the most recent, but before that there was um, another incident where there'd been a really significant fire and, you know, we'd been doing communications about it and, you know, it had been very um, intense phase and it was actually another project I worked on, Gary, with. And so, you know, you're sort of working very long days and you're in a little bit distance from what you're doing and then I was leaving the hospital one night and bumped into someone who'd been affected by it by the incident and it just really shook me because it was um, I knew so many details about what the scenario was and it was very easy for me to relate to personally because it involved children and then just sort of feeling just hollowed out sort of just walking away from it and then realizing you're just not dealing with it at all on an emotional level so I think sometimes realizing that as a communicator you need to take some of the same steps that you know key workers take in terms of you know thinking about understanding and feeling your emotions and acknowledging that it can be really difficult to to work on these sort of situations and just give yourself a bit of time and space. And do you use like a coach to debrief? I think I'll probably talk to Gary. will be, we'll be one of my pieces. Um, <laughs> Gary, you'll be getting lots of phone calls. <laughs> um, often like, you know, with the crisis scenarios, you know, the, you can't talk to one about the details because um, they're sensitive and confidential. So it's probably mm-hmm. more just about taking some time out for yourself. Like I always have a walking workstation in my office and that really helps because physical movement, you know, it's different for different people and what they find yeah, rejuvenating, but that helps me. And just breaking off the topic, like read an article, do something else, just just disconnect from from that sort of quite intense scenario just long enough to to get some perspective back, I think can be really useful. I, I think Sarah brings up a really good nuance. You know, communicators, being a community, it's, it's ironic in communicators, we communicate with the world. We're constantly uh, building communications and executing communi- communications, but it's also a very, very lonely position. One, there's not a lot of communicators in most organizations. And two, a lot of things that you work on, again, transparency is a function of time. So there's a, typically as a communicator, you're privy to information before anybody else is, long before anybody else is. 
and you can't talk to anybody about it. You have to hold that inside, right? Um, and for some people, that can be very stressful. You know, for me, I I spend a lot of time in my head anyway, so I also talk to talk to Gary. <laughs> but um, but I'm a runner, so I I go out and wrong you know run long distances and just spend that time disassociating from everything. I, I just wanted to, to, to build on Sarah's point that, yeah, it can be hard. It can be lonely and you have to find some sort of healthy outlet or someone to talk to without breaking confidentiality or keeping to the obligations of trusted advisor who um, can be trusted. Both of you are very senior in your roles. You've got experience across the globe in all sorts of different roles. Um, Sarah, you've had experience in all different industries as well. For someone who's just starting out in their career, and I had a lovely chat with a girl in Melbourne the other day who was just finishing off her third year, I think it was, of university. What tips would you give them? What should they be focusing on at the start of their career? Gary, why don't you start? You're an amazing mentor. So, um, <laughs> I'll accept that, but um, I'm not sure if I believe it, but I accept it. Um, <laughs> I would say that there has to be a fair amount of self-awareness and honesty right, about one's own skill sets. I, I meet a lot of people who believe they are good writers and, and they simply aren't, right? So... But you have to reckon that you find those those competencies that you're that you're really good at and and build on those. I'm a big proponent of building on your strengths. I think building weaknesses leads to mediocrity. So it's best to not that you should let your weaknesses go, but to you know um, your focus should be on your strengths and and to to continue to build those. As mentioned earlier, there's something about really really understanding your business, right? Build your business acumen. Understand how the company that you work for makes money, understand the finance aspects, understand the IT aspects, human resources, all the functions. You And uh, I know a lot of communicators don't like to deal with that, but you but you have to. And, and I think there's this continuous learning. I, for me, the IABC has actually been a tremendous resource, right? There's, there's uh, I forgot to mention that I was hired by Saudi Ramco at a, or I first met Saudi Ramco at an IABC conference, which led to the interview, which led to my being hired. So, so not only are there job opportunities that might pop, pop up at the conferences, but there's also, you know, meeting other communicators, understanding, building your awareness of the communications industry or function. It's very wide, you know, and it's not just about writing or graphic designs, there's relationship building, there's project management, there's um, so many other things. So there's something about understanding the full breadth of communications. Yeah, I think I've, um, I definitely agree with Gary on the point about joining professional organizations. Yes, there are opportunities, but also communications people in general are really supportive of each other. Because as Gary mentioned, you're often, there's not that many of you in your organization. Whereas, and I think they tend to be people who are very interested in engaging and supporting with each other when you meet professionally. Don't be afraid to to be the most junior person at a conference. Or, and also, you know, if you haven't started working yet, get involved early. You know, don't wait for your company to send you to these conferences. 
attend the lectures, listen. Um, even if you register online and you can't afford to go to conferences, do it that way. Watch the the keynote speakers because you do learn an incredible amount. Take note. That's one of my other pieces. I think in terms of if you're starting out in the industry, choosing a role where you'll be working with someone you can learn from is worth, you know, 25% of your pay, so covering your, your living expenses. But don't, you know, choosing a role where you're going to grow, be exposed to experiences that will make you better, keep you engaged and make you interesting. It's such a valuable piece of it, the, the learning experiences, who you work for, the projects you work on, in addition to just that passion for developing your own skills. My, as I mentioned, my um, BA majored in anthropology. So I think that's where I really got interested in communications because it's a lot of that focuses on you know, how different societies or groups, especially groups within societies, perceive different scenarios and how messages are received um, and sent. And I think really seeing how deep the the science and the, the abstract and more theoretical parts of communications, how much they can influence good strategy and change outcomes. And then with that, looking at case studies from history. So some of the, the most exciting things I find is I've got books of speeches. So if, if anyone's listening, you really should um, go to YouTube and JFK's speech at Rice University where he talks about the moon launch. You know, just examples of where people have done things that have inspired others and been really right. Um, as I said, right attitude. So looking at those and sort of, you know, t- trying to figure out what were the elements that made it work. And also, you know, it's also always just as interesting to look at the case studies of things that went horribly wrong. But basically just expanding, you know, your your understanding by looking at outside your industry, at a, you know, throughout history. So you're not just in a pigeonhole of what I've learned in the last three years and what I've seen right in front of me. That's a very narrow slice of the world. I think there's also something about choosing the industry you plan to go into. You know, communications is a function that you can layer across all or all industries or most industries. And most people work for money, right? And to support themselves and their families, so forth. And not all industries are built the same. So you can do communications, let's say, for like the educational system and not make a lot of money. You can do the same type of work for pharmaceutical companies or for energy or, um, you know, pick your, your, your sector or industry. And you can do the same type of work, but we reward it financially much more than you would in other industries. So there's something about really, really, if, if that's your goal, right, to have a financially rewarding career, there's something about thinking about the industry you're going into. And also, you probably want to pick an industry you're actually interested in, right, to have a passion for, and an industry you can actually believe in. Now, Gary and Sarah, I just wanted to check with you if there's anything else that you'd like to share, any further thoughts on the conversation that we'd had. It's just been so insightful and amazing speaking with you. Um, thanks, Mick. I don't have anything to add, but just to say I really enjoyed this um, and I've been looking back at some of the other interviews and, I, and I'm looking forward to hearing some of the future ones as well. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Gary? Thanks for, for hosting both of us and, um, yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. And if any of our listeners have any questions or loved this episode, please do reach out to Gary and Sarah on LinkedIn and let them know. Thanks again for your time. Have a great day. Bye. Thank you. Thank you.